Welcome to Read This Fucking Book, episode 16, Provenance by Anne Leckie. I'm Elena. And I'm Rachel. And we are here tonight to talk about the new Anne Leckie book. Um, But first, uh, we would like to, I don't know, catch up a bit, because it's been a while since we got to have any book talks. So, Rachel, have you been reading anything else lately? I have been, actually. I just uh, recently spent a lot of time in an airport, so I uh, just finished a book called Hunted. Uh, it's by, I'm looking it up, Megan Spooner. Uh, I think it's a new, a newer book because it's one of those things that got recommended to me via the Kindle recommendations, and then I know that you had said that it was on sale, or maybe I found that. At some point, it was on sale, so we bought it, and I read it in the... in in the airport and you know it's really really good and you know I know that we are huge fans of the Beauty and the Beast stories uh on this podcast so this is (laughs) yes a retelling of Beauty and the Beast spoiler but uh I really liked the take I know that you know I think it really goes with our tastes that we're sort of been finding with this project that we have it's a little dark uh it's got a lot of uh nature stuff in it and uh I think I sent you a text that said it had a lot of like righteous female rage in it that I really yes. enjoyed. So yeah, highly recommend Hunted by Megan Spooner. What have you been reading? Well, um, I the only book that I've gotten into at all other than Provenance this month is Emily Wilson's new translation of The Odyssey, which I oh, actually yeah. um, haven't even gotten into the poem other than like the little bit that I skimmed the day I got it. I'm, I'm still reading the introduction, which is pretty substantial. She's going through like multiple sort of thematic and historical aspects of it. Um, and I'm actually super excited about this for multiple reasons. I mean, in the first place, I've, I've never actually read the unabridged Odyssey. I've read excerpts from it. Um, and this is the first uh, translation by a woman, by a female scholar, which just kind of blows my mind that it's 2017 and that is the case. But there it is. Um, and I I don't know. I just, I really, um, I really liked an interview that I saw with her. Um, I don't, I'm wanting to sound like on Vox or Vice or something like that. Uh, just kind of discussing like how she felt um, like almost like this weird sort of outsider um, translating kind of one of the pillars of Western manhood as a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the the way she discussed like the choices she was making and the, the sort of way she went with how to present the poetry and some of the themes. I, I thought she, it sounded like she had a really good balance of both keeping that kind of outside perspective a little bit uncomfortable with the text, but also not trying to um, be radical with it and not like trying to have an agenda with it. Um, So I don't know, it seemed like it would be a really interesting balance. And from uh, aside from that, just like the first few lines of the poem, I think I skimmed about like two pages. uh, It's fucking good poetry. And I'm really excited to uh, to get into it. So Awesome. I've seen uh, the interview, uh, well, a interview with her hitting around on Twitter and I keep, you know, saving it to look at later. And I knew that she had been, she was the first woman to do the translation, but I haven't read anything yet. So that's exciting. You'll have to tell me how it goes. Yeah, I, uh, I'm happy to keep you updated. And I don't know, it's, it's weird because I just had this 
when I saw that, I was like, it's time for me to read something smart again. Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, I've spent uh, a long time since college mostly reading books for fun. And it's not that they can't be smart and that you can't, like, break them down and talk about them. But it was just like, it just really hit me. I'm like, no, I want something, like, meaty and scholarly and, I don't know, English majorish. So <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of what Anne Leckie said at the at the talk that I saw her make at New York Comic Con, where she, they, her and N.K. Jemison were kind of trying to decide what canon meant and if mm-hmm. there was a canon and why should old white men define canon, uh, you know, the canon of literature. Uh, so yeah, but right. I think that everyone agrees that you know, the Odyssey's in there, but why and from what angle is an interesting examination yeah and i actually hadn't even thought about how um how well uh thematically like a translation of a you know traditionally masculine text by a woman kind of ties in with like the whole ethos of you know of Anne Leckie's writing just because I, i don't think that she has like a a strong agenda in the sense of having a particular point of view, but she does have an agenda of, I want you to like think about these things in a way that maybe you hadn't and think about like the implications of gender and, um, and language and things like that. And so I didn't even realize, but it totally ties into, uh, to the book that we're here to talk about. Yeah. Um, so, uh, with that said, um, Provenance is a new book. It came out in late September of 2017. So it's now been out like essentially two months. Um, and so it is too recent to have been nominated for anything. Um, although it is getting lots of, uh, critical, uh, praise and acclaim and recommendations. Um, I haven't seen it marked as hitting any bestseller lists, but, um, that was also kind of just a, a cursory Google search. So I could be wrong, but it hasn't. Um, and of course, our loyal listeners might remember uh, this name from episodes four and four point five, where we discussed the Ancillary Justice trilogy. Um, we're pretty unabashed lucky fangirls in these parts, but um, you know that's neither here nor there. If the book is <laughs> is awesome or not awesome, we're going to talk about that. So, um, Rachel, what the heck is this book about? All right, so Provenance uh, is on its surface a story about a young woman named Ingray who essentially kind of starts doing some political fuckery to impress her mother, who is a prominent political figure on their home world of Hue. And she does this by going to a nearby system, a space station called Tyr, and paying ungodly amounts of money to have a criminal brought out of what they're calling uh, compassionate uh, removal. And that person's name is uh, Pelad Budrakum, um, also known as Garalket. And she's getting him out of prison because he, she believes, or at least the public believes, that he is, uh, has stolen what on her planet are known as vestiges, which are items of significance and importance. Uh, things that anybody in our culture would be familiar with, you know, things that were around during something that happened that was important or items or objects that uh, were the catalyst for, you know, change. Yeah, this would be an example of like the like the Liberty Bell or, yeah. you know, the an original copy of the United States Constitution would, would be like 
important vestiges and something like an invitation to a White House ball would be a less important vestige. Yeah. So she thinks that he's stolen them. No one ever found them. So she's going to break him out of prison, get him to tell her, uh, she has no plan for this, but get him to tell her where they are, <laughs> get them, and then embarrass uh, Palad's father, who is, happens to be her own mother's uh, most prominent political rival. And therefore, she will make a splash and impress her mother and perhaps best her uh, more favored brother and that's kind of the main storyline there's also aliens and translators and a bunch of conspiracy theories and a murder <laughs> yes um i uh, i saw uh, someone describe it as um like plot wise it's a cozy mystery in space and i was like <laughs> huh not how i would have like redacted the plot but I can see the argument for it. It's not entirely wrong. <laughs> it's fairly cozy because, um, you know, we are seeing everything from a fairly privileged point of view. So you get yes. like everything moves really fast, but there aren't a lot of characters. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's just, um, you know, in, in the sense that Ingre is not someone who normally like is involved with murders or solving them. You know, but yet she is, um, because she's the person that finds the body, like completely entwined with with it and with the politics of it for various reasons. And um, so, um, I guess we should probably talk about um, the characters. You, I think you did a good job t touching on Ingrid. I mean, she is, un you know, the unequivocal protagonist. The book is told third person limited from her point of view. Um, so we really don't get anyone else's perspective other than through what they say and do to Ingre. Um, and um, I don't know, is, is there anything else that really needs to be said about Pallad Boudricum Garl Kett? Because he's such a an opaque character. Like it's... Um, he's opaque, but, but gosh, he's so smooth. Like, you know, from the <laughs> moment that she wakes him up from his little suspension pod... And he's able to just kind of brush off and be like, I'm not Pilat Bedrakum. I don't know. No, I just look like him. No, I'm not him. And just like he doesn't have to insist and he doesn't ever get. I just I imagine him to be kind of like really like his delivery is very flat all the time. You know, mm -hmm. like he has a lot going on in his head, clearly, because he's moving really fast and he's always thinking ahead. And he's really good at taking comments from people that he doesn't know and like rolling with it to his own advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, but. He's still pretty sly. Like, you know, he, he may not have stolen all of those vestiges when you find out that there was nothing to steal because most of them are fake anyway. But he <laughs> he used that knowledge to to make a lot of fake ones and sell them and make mm -hmm. money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Kind of a crook. Well, he, I mean, he's he's he is definitely um, like it shows that he both grew up in a political family where obviously he was trained from a young age, like how to control your face and your voice and like project what you want um, other people to see, but also that he went through, I mean, basically that he's been through the hard times that give you kind of the internal conviction to, if you need to sell, sell that persona, like it is absolute. Like you just find that place inside yourself where you believe it with everything that you are and like, nobody's going to question it. Um, like I, I actually like for me one of the best moments of the novel was realizing along with Ingre that He's he had Pallad. lied to her that he actually <laughs> is Pallad and she had fallen for it when he said I'm not they made a mistake I don't know who you're talking about 
like that was golden um well that setup for that is so good too because like you know when they pull him out she's like well he looks like him and i'd see him in real life you know not like personally but i've seen him and it sure does look like him but i guess it's not and i paid a lot of money and they said it was and there's all this technology that they wouldn't lie to me (laughs) but he says he's not so i guess she takes everyone at their word and she just it's like it tricks you as the reader because at the beginning you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I know better. This is actually Pilat. And then you're like, no, I guess it's not. And then later on it's like, oh, damn, he was. <laughs> yeah, like that's I, I think that's a, a testament to, to Lucky's skill with um, with like how it's subtle, but it's so you are so deep in Ingray's point of view, um, mm-hmm. you know, because it is the third person. And so you feel like there's a little more like, I guess, uh distance between you and her is like the reader but then you realize like there's not you literally are only seeing through her eyes yeah um, it's, it's very well done yeah the way um, that she views her mother i think is really indicative of that limited point of view because she clearly mm-hmm. her i mean she's doing all of this out of motivation and she's there's a lot of things that she's not allowing herself to dwell on or think about or examine about what motivates her and why she's mm-hmm. trying to get this this attention from her mother uh but at the you know at the same time she's you know she characterizes her mother as fairly unfeeling, uh, mm-hmm. and there's evidence that that's not true. It, yeah, she's it's it's you're definitely in Ingray's head. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So speaking of her mother, I think possibly my favorite thing about the Natano is that she is only referred to by her title, and it yeah. always has the V in front of it, like that's it's such a uh it's just it's so perfect I don't know, like every time venetano mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but then i mean it does Venetano, or they will be venetano and then when she yes. names her heir they will become venetano yeah like it's it's so very much a title but it's also like it is who her mother is and like that um I mean, it's it's a it's a good way to say a lot about her character that even within her family, she doesn't want to be called by her name. She doesn't want her children to call her, you know, um, or to speak about her like an individual. It's always like by her title, the head of the house, the head of this political, you know, faction or whatever, um, you know, however you want to break it down. Um, yeah. I believe Ingrid does call her mother. So it's not that she wants her children to call her by the title but when they refer to her it's in their head you know, it's, it's not Venetano. as an individual it's as, as Venetano like that the entity that she the political entity that she is is her identity even to her own children um I think that this is and... a good time to talk about identity too because you know this book is called provenance uh yeah. that word has a lot of baggage that comes along with it and I think that Lecky is doing so many things with that word and each character in the story helps her push along that I don't want to say agenda I mean you're an author you're writing a story you have a you know you're you're presenting it through a specific lens uh but she is examining what that word means uh from Mm -hmm. as many angles as she possibly can yeah um I uh I, I would say it's just it's it's an idea that she's pushing. It's not an agenda, but she's yeah. pushing an idea, you know, um, and that's maybe a, a, a more neutral way to, uh, to say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Funny, funny story about that. You actually went and looked up what provenance means um, and included a dictionary definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for anybody who might have, um, you know, any doubt, uh, 
the place of origin or earliest known history of something um secondary definition origin source place of origin it includes the beginning of something's existence something's origin um a record of ownership of a work of art or antique used as, to, used as a guide to authenticity or quality. Um, and uh, I actually had no idea what this word meant because it's a word that I learned by reading mm-hmm. and that I only had from context clues and I thought I understood, so I never looked up. And I actually thought that it meant kind of like windfall or unexpected oh, yeah. gift. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... And it's possible that there is a meaning. Um, I I looked at dictionary.com. They didn't have a sec like a, a second definition or a second entry for it. So maybe like the Oxford English Dictionary would. But um, I just was like, wow, I really had no idea what that word meant. And I've been misusing it since I learned it probably 20 years ago. That's marvelous. <laughs> What's funny to me is like I used this word in school. Uh, I studied a lot of art. And so when we said provenance, we would say provenance, you know, and it was about, <laughs> well, what is the provenance of this artwork? Well, and then you would list off the owners of the artwork, right? The pedigree of its mm-hmm. movement to for for its authenticity. Is it real? Can you follow the provenance? And so when I was reading this book, to me, it was a direct link to the objects. And I felt mm-hmm. like, well, this story is really about these objects. Uh, mm-hmm. It took me quite a bit into the book before I realized, like, the objects themselves don't really matter. Uh, which I think is on purpose, but that she's, you know, it's it, people are all coming from different places, too. And whether they... Mm-hmm acknowledge where they come from or redefine where they come from or you know move on to different places I I think is more important but I was really Mm -hmm. stuck on the on the vestiges uh for a lot for 75 percent of the story yeah well I mean I I think that's um I think that's indicative of the fact that you have training like in that field you know um for for me I like my my crossing of paths with things like this is working in academic libraries uh libraries refer to them as ephemera mm-hmm. um and they're actually you know are like they're a pain in the ass to catalog um so there actually are um processes for describing this kind of um ephemera or vestige from an event it's you know in library world it tends to be things like posters or letters or invitations or i mean it's it's exactly the same sort of stuff um at least like the minor vestiges that um that danak or dana whatever the brother liked to collect um Mm -hmm. and so that's that just sort of like tickled my fancy it's like oh i have a brushing like familiarity with this concept i was you know I spent a couple years as a lowly library tech in acquisitions. Um, I didn't get to actually interact with such wonders. I was simply <laughs> told about them in training. You know, that's like that's for the special light, like the Louisiana collection, or you know, the um, the fancy collection that only the bibliographer who ordered it gets to touch the record kind of thing. Yeah, but I think that that's important too because you know, like human beings do have connections to objects. Mm-hmm just because they're old or just because they were there, you know? Yeah. Uh, You know, you see things all the time. You're like, oh, well, who cares? It's an old, it's a pair of old glasses. It's like, yes, but these old glasses were at Gettysburg or something, you know, like, yeah, they suddenly become important because of that 
you know, the mm-hmm. provenance of them and yeah, the lineage. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's funny to think that there was a whole, she created a whole world, a whole society, a whole political system based on these ideas. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you take something and you make it a little bit absurd. You blow it up to, to really examine it. And that's what she does right. here with way. And, uh, it just makes me think, you know, like even something really political is like, is, as people, uh, protesting the use of the flag, you know, or like, can you use it like that? Or can you wear it? Mm-hmm. Or what's respect? Or, you know, like even stuff like that, that we talk about and like that's on television. That's like main news when people talk about that. That's really all just based on like kind of bullshit, just like uh, mm-hmm. just like the bullshit that they find out that a lot of these these vestiges that govern their entire way of life are like. Um and it, it's also really cool that the murder that kind of sets off a lot of these events is because this one woman is attempting to ascertain the origin and, and you know, provenance of these glass structures on Hue. Right. And therefore, somehow, just if she, she if she decides, if she discovers that they don't belong to way in so that they were there before and that they are that because people were there before then suddenly an entire group of people on a different planet get rights to the gate in the system i mean that's kind of Mm -hmm. insane but that's how their system worked yeah um well i i think for me like one of the um one of my favorite aspects just in terms of cultural commentary was the interaction with people from other systems that base like that you know basically tell ingre yeah people outside of way laugh at us for our vestiges and how like easily disproved that you know disprovable they are like they can be so easily like authenticated or discredited if you actually apply like the technology and the knowledge that's out there that you know, people just don't, they don't, it's, it's like they don't want to, you know, like their culture reveres them so much. They would rather believe the convenient lie, yeah. um, that, you know, that, oh, we just happened to find this, you know, box up in the attic right before elections. And it has this really important, you know, vestige in it. Uh-huh. Oh, look sign. at us donating it, you know. <laughs> well, it goes back to like magical thinking. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. nobody, nobody looks at the, at the Liberty Bell or something and, and laughs at it like it's stupid. But you might right. at like a finger bone in a museum or, you mm-hmm. know, like something else that someone thought was important that we now know not to be real. And how does yeah. that knowledge change the way we look at the object and venerate the object? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think like, uh, I mean, for me, like the obvious example coming to mind is, you know, the people um, that were buried, like the, the way the pharaohs were buried with, you know, all of their, um, all their crap. gold and, yeah. you know, wine and oils and things around them because you know the understanding was that's what they would take with them into the underworld and the afterlife and they you know needed to have all those things and we sort of look at that and like we're like yeah that's ridiculous um but that and was... we also removed them and put them all in <laughs> museums for us to gawk at and that doesn't bother us because the right. point of them is we don't believe that so it's not exactly yeah so to us that wasn't like you know desecrating their afterlife because we don't believe that that actually happened yeah um or at least the people that plundered the tombs didn't think that. <laughs> yeah the rest of us have seen enough brendan fraser movies that we don't know <laughs> put it back uh so yeah so that's uh Pallad. 
and and Ingray. Uh, my very favorite character is the captain, Captain Usin. Uh, mm. who yes, comes... I have a report from a from my book club, which oh yeah, coincidentally read this that he was unanimously the favorite character. Yeah, um, he was so funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, they were like, let's just get. Can we just have a whole book about Tick? Like, he was great. <laughs> What's weird to me is like I really liked him and then I would come to the end I came to the end of the story and I was like but what is his motivation like why does he risk himself for these people um and I really think that a lot of it is given to us in context clues that Tick you know is choosing a life mm-hmm. and in choosing a life you choose your actions much more deliberately and mm-hmm. you I think you can see more clearly when other people are trying to do the same thing and I think that mm-hmm. the the kind of goal that Ingray and Pallad, you know, and when Pallad becomes Garal Ket, I think that really spoke to the captain. I think that he really wanted to help. And also he yeah. wanted to like stick it to the Gek. <laughs> yeah, I mean he, he definitely had um, you know, some uh damn the man kind of impulses. I mean I I, t- I took a lot of it to be that he was kind of, in some ways he was a lost soul. Like he yeah. had fled you know, he intentionally rejected, but at this, you know, in anger and the the moves that he made to escape from being part of the, you know, Gek culture and controlled by the Gek um, meant that he left his home world. He left everyone he'd ever known and loved and um, essentially like set out alone in the universe. And, you know, he regardless of how they met he did like connect with ingre like and and with girl he knew that um she was in some ways kind of a babe in the woods and you know good-hearted despite like having some <laughs> questionable you know ideas that she was trying to execute and who knows you know what he really like what he and girl talked about um or what he saw there but you know when you when you find someone that you connect with like it's kind of like i guess the idea of the family that you choose yeah um and so i think he decided that he was going to choose them and that you know that they were his friends and maybe he didn't realize it at first and he was like you know let him go and i was like no actually i i i need to i need to come back i need to to see what's what they're doing and what if they're okay and um i don't know like that that was my take on his motivation is that basically he was he was choosing them and he was mm-hmm. choosing like the the friendship and the the connection because who else did he have he had his spider right. mechs you yeah, know he didn't have <laughs> he didn't have friends he didn't have his family he could go back to like he was you know alone and so yeah um, yeah people who didn't reject him you know like yeah i think all you know i, I think he had a kindred spirit in palata in a, in a lot of ways um mm-hmm. And I definitely think there was kind of a budding romance going on there. Oh, for uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but I, the spider Max comments makes me remember that when I got my book signed, which was before I had read it because I bought it and then had her sign it. Um, mm-hmm. And Lucky, like, she drew, like, a little... I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and it turns out it was a little spider mech with like its little eye stalks and its little <laughs> and its little legs. Um, and then she also gave me a card that came with the book that um, was stamped that said uh, that it was from New York Comic Con and the date. Uh, and it was it was like a fake um, postcard that said greetings uh, from uh, what's the name of the valley with the with the 
Oh, Esway Parkland. Esway Parkland. Yeah. So it was like greetings from Esway Parkland. Uh, and mm-hmm. then and then she when she handed it to me, she was like, this doesn't make sense right now. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, but you're going to want to save this and it'll make sense when you read the book. And I'm like, she gave me a vestige and it's stamped. <laughs> yep. Um, I, uh, I I got one from the reading. I went to a vestige of October 1st, 2017 at Book People in Austin. And um, it's a visit to Esway Parkland. So, yeah, yeah. that was. Um, That's cool, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's, really it's, cool. it's it was so it was so well done because um, I'm, I'm well, I'm sure there were a few people who had managed to like pick the book up and read it before like um, they went to the, the talk and probably before Comic-Con for the most part, people like were buying it there or hadn't had a chance to read it yet. And so it was like, I don't know what this is, but that's, that's cool. And then like mm-hmm. you get into reading it and you're like, holy shit, this is super cool. I love it. I love but it But it's so like much. super meta, right? Because we just read this yes. whole book about how vestiges aren't real and who cares. But at the end, the end it's like, <laughs> but you know what? They mean something to us and they've been given and we've given the meaning. So that's fine. And then you're like, oh, that's cute. And like, kind of like folksy and then you're like but i have this vestige and i will keep it safe forever and ever and ever and i know it was real <laughs> <laughs> because well because that's the thing is like some of them weren't faked you know like like some of them were actually real and that's and that's why people were willing to believe that some you know to to believe it because you know like there did have to be an original copy of that document at some point or there did have to be you know some bell that rang in the first like meeting of the assembly after the debt to tear had been paid and they were finally like free to form their own constitution and government you know all these things and so like it, it's that idea that the best lie has a grain of truth you know mm-hmm. but also and like so, the absurdity of culture right like nobody yeah. sits down and plans what their culture is going to be like you know you can you have the luxury of doing that when you're an author but in real life right. it's like well this is this is ridiculous what you're doing. Like, why are you doing that? You know, like, like, I don't, I'm thinking of like barristers who still wear those dumb wigs and like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just like, this is stupid, but it's real. And so like when they like, they bring their, their, their whole governing body into session by like ringing a butter bell or something. And it's just like, that is dumb, <laughs> but that's what a they had. jar. Yeah. Pickling jar. Yeah. Like that is, that's stupid. <laughs> But it's I mean, but the, they, but the thing is, they weren't intending it to be anything important. It was no, it was simply like what they had yeah. at the time. This is what they had at hand, and so they used it. But then it kind of became part of like the the mythos of their culture, and suddenly took this, you know, took on this like vast importance that you know it it never would have had. There's um, something quite Victorian, I feel, about this sensibility. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like calling cards and that kind of thing. Yes. You would like sign it because I came here. Because I'm wondering what it's like, you know, Ingre, Augschold, and, and Danak, her brother, and their mother, then Tano, their uncle, uh, Locke, Nuncle Locke, which every time I read Nuncle, I thought of Game of Thrones and laughed. Uh, <laughs> but I, I realized that it's Nuncle because Locke is a Neiman, much like yes. Pallad was a Neiman, and Neiman is the kind of third gender of this three gender system. But Nuncle is just a funny way to say uncle in game of thrones <laughs> uh <laughs> anyway uh all these people are very prominent right so they mm-hmm. themselves they generate vestiges because they're important just by virtue yes. of their very positions what must it be like in these societies 
if you're nobody, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, these are the people that don't even have enough money to collect all these vestiges, but we have evidence that people of limited means do collect them. You know, some even orphans were trying to get them. So mm-hmm. I wonder what it's like to, to kind of... The, the vestiges that you're collecting, they're not of your peer group. It's just right. got to be different. It's got to be like how we are at Comic-Con, where it's like, thank you for this this little scrap that you've given me. I shall cherish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually interesting because, um, you know, in reality, uh, you don't like you like so much of, of history is written after the fact. I mean, Mm -hmm. like we do this, honestly, with our personal lives, you know, not just like our cultural history, but like it's more obvious on our cultural history, but like we choose the narrative, like we choose like to to say this is what I'm going to focus on and these five events or what I'm going to say are important and things that I'm going to, you know, string together to make a story out of. But when you're a kid, you don't know like who the important players are going to be. You don't know who's going to be like political or like invent something or like make first contact with an alien civilization or, you know, anything like that, that, you know, so you don't, you don't keep the things from your peer group because you don't, you don't know if they're going to matter and like, you can't keep everything, you know? So yeah, anyway, you just, you you don't know like what's going to be important later because you haven't had the space and the time to figure out like what the narrative is. And um, so you know, it's, it's almost like accidental, the things that get preserved and that somebody just happened to like have in a drawer somewhere, like these letters or holiday postcards from a friend who turned out to, you know, be the next Natano or, you know, whatever. Right. I um, was thinking about that, like my inability to throw out birthday cards and, you know, it's like you get them mm-hmm. and then you put them in a drawer because you can't throw them away because someone sent that to you. And I guess right. maybe because, re- you know, real mail isn't isn't as prominent anymore, but then did it before email too i don't know it's a strange it's a strange human characteristic uh, that i she just must have been really inspired by yeah um it's uh yeah it's definitely not something that i've deeply examined i guess at like the meta level um i mean i recently like um have come face to face with like a drawer full of like old letters and um postcards and things like that and it was interesting because you know for me to go through it because at 34 I have a very different curating um system than I did when I was 20 which is probably the last time I opened that drawer and Mm -hmm. you know I honestly I tossed two-thirds of it I was very proud of myself for being willing to like let all of that go and um so (laughs) maybe I'll regret it someday maybe I won't but it's done (laughs) i kind of went through a forced version of that when my apartment burned and i was standing amidst all of the crap and it was like why are we trying so hard to save this stuff like we were obsessively going over what was essentially garbage at that point Mm -hmm. but like how do we save this can we save this can we dust it off i want to put it in a ziploc bag like why why do you Mm -hmm. need that what is that that's nothing anymore it doesn't it doesn't do the thing you want it to do anymore it's nothing it's a it's a thing that used to exist and yet Mm -hmm. you still yeah still like it's special it was there Mm -hmm. um but speaking of there this book still set in the in the same kind of 
overarching universe as the rest of Lecky's uh, ancillary books, but not in Radchai space. So this is a different yes. part of the universe. But we still get a couple uh, little drops that made me kind of excited that, you know, made the hairs on my arm stand up when she talked about the Gek and the translators. Uh, yes. <laughs> just very, you know, because that's why everyone's scared of the Gek, right? Because they're the Presger, like, reps. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a, um, they have a, they're, I mean, they're part of the treaty and that, yeah. you know, uh, the treaty governs all of them, but it's what prevents the Presker from just taking over everything. And so, um, which they absolutely could. <laughs> yeah, which they absolutely could. And so that, yeah, that's why everybody in human space is very like um, flustered by the GAC when they show up and then when they divert from their planned itinerary um because like they have to they have to appease them it's kind of it's kind of like with um in the in the ancillary books with with translator zia like everybody's bending over backwards to appease Mm -hmm. her because like they can't possibly like offend like the presker they can't like so in in this case like they can't offend the gek they have to let them do exactly what they want as long as they're not like actively breaking the treaty but it doesn't matter they were actively breaking the treaty I don't think anybody would have done anything. Like, I mean, the Gek themselves yeah. were abiding by the treaty and it was important to them. But what if it wasn't? Do you really right. think that these people would have been like, ah, 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 we're going to tell the Presger and be like, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> like, they could literally do anything they wanted. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Gek ambassador was like, fuck it. <laughs> and like, yes. went down to the planet to yell at people and like, you know, attach herself to cars or whatever the hell she was doing. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the Gek, oh my gosh, the, the Gek interference was, just the Gek in general, was, was one of my favorite parts of this book. Um, I think like... A random think, Gek appears. Like. Yes. Well, one, one of the things that Lecky does like masterfully is she presents this like weird alternate point of view and she makes it make sense and yet be so fucking alien at the same time. And like the 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 gek are that like you mm-hmm. can't predict them as a human because like they're they're gecking and they're gecking yeah like they they're don't make sense you. <laughs> you know they have their own motivations and their own you know um, sort of reason for what they're doing but you it doesn't make sense to us and um, you know then when the uh, ambassador. Like, because we think of the ambassador, you know, as probably like this very important pers- personage and, you know, would be like aloof. And then like, what the fuck is she doing? Like personally <laughs> following around Ingre, who's yes, from a prominent political family, but also kind of a nobody, um, you know, and like breaking into her house and like screaming at her. It's like, like it yeah. clearly has nothing to do with her, like her function yeah. as an ambassador exactly she's, she's having a family issue <laughs> yeah like ch- chasing this random like you know person who may or may not have like run away from gek society like why why is the ambassador to the presger and humanity like chasing a ship thief like really yeah what's like, going on really <laughs> but then you find out that it's guilt right it was like i yeah. i made it so that he wouldn't die because i knew he had a birth defect that wouldn't allow him to do whatever it is they do in to deep swim s- down yeah to swim <laughs> down which i assume is something to do with pressure and gills mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. But, you know, in doing so, she preserved her sister, I believe, her sister's, like, favorite offspring. 
but then he was resentful of the life he had to leave as as essentially a broken geck who couldn't swim down mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and left. Uh, but so she's chasing him all over like, wait, 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 you can't leave. You can't leave. That wasn't the point. The point was for you to be OK. And I made I think I didn't mm-hmm. make you OK. And you have to yeah. let me make it better. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you make choices and you can't make it better. And you have to let that person recover. Yeah. Uh, um, it was a really kind of sad and painful, like, little family yeah, like actually, I'm, I want to um, let me see if I can find it again because I want I wanted to read some of that section. I thought um, it was um, just really, um, really beautiful. Um, I did it, agreed the ambassador. I did a wrong thing, but if I had not done it, Tick Uasin would have not survived swimming down. If I had allowed him to swim down, he would be dead. I did the thing I did so that at least he could be alive and in the world. But then he stole ships and left the world. It was like him to do such a thing. It was not like Gek to do such a thing. He would not have survived swimming down. No, he would not. Um, Silence. Then, his mother grieved. My clutchmate grieved. What can live outside the world? There are creatures that live outside the world, but they must be creatures of endless sorrow and pain and death. The conclave before I went and did what was needed and returned to the world. I did not want to be outside the world at all, but to keep the aliens away, I must do so. I returned to the world as quickly as could be. I thought to do so again this time, but we saw our ship, and I thought to myself that Tick Uasin might be there, and it might be that I could bring him back, and he would not be any longer in endless pain and suffering because he would be in the world again, and his mother would cease to grieve. But Tick Uasin was always headstrong. Always. From a larva he was headstrong. Perhaps I am headstrong as well. A bit. (laughs) (laughs) A bit, yeah. And I just, I I think that, like, that passage to me, like, it captures, like, the Gek perspective so well. Because, like, you can tell that they, they have a very definite point of view about, like, what they consider to be the world and important. Mm -hmm. And, like, the rest of the universe is like, really, fuck you. Just stay away from us. That's all we want. This is our world. it has to be considered extremely deviant behavior for a Gek. Mm -hmm. Which, yes. you know, Tick is a geck, whether they're more human or not. Um, right. That, you know, he, he left. He left. He yeah. doesn't want to be there anymore. You know, like, that's not how geck are. Uh, and it's, it's, it's both evidence of um, more room in their society than I think that the geck ambassador was kind of admitting to herself. Mm-hmm. But also the, the same as we do in our in our society, right? We have a very binary society. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's very focused on class and 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 material wealth and capitalism and all. You know, a, a myriad, just infinite amount of things. But there's always mm-hmm. other things that aren't those main things. Uh, and right. it might only be two percent of the population or ten percent of the population or a completely different culture that we don't acknowledge. Uh, but it's there, uh, and, and mm-hmm. it makes it richer, it makes it deeper, it makes it more interesting. Uh, and I think that it's evidence that Tick was loved, uh, but also evidence that how love can also harm you. Uh, mm-hmm. It was, I don't know, I really like that that dynamic. I think that was a yeah. really interesting dynamic. More interesting yeah. to me than Ingray trying to uh, impress kind of a non-attentive mother. Yeah, I mean, by, by far, um, the... Uh... And I don't know, I, I guess it, it also, it, it, I hate to say the word humanizes, but it makes, it makes them relatable because mm-hmm. 
Um, it shows like all of the erraticism in the Gex behavior is actually driven by emotion. It's driven by this like emotional sort of desperation to to make it right and or at the very least to make sure that he's okay. You know, yeah. that he's not in pain and suffering and death in the beyond the world, you know, where he is, that he's actually like okay. And um, you know, yeah, I mean, just I, love can be suffocating. Like it doesn't yeah. Um, it can be given with the best of intentions and still do harm. And that's, I don't know, kind of like the, the joy and the sorrow of a family, I, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's why it's like nice that you see Tick and, and Geralt together because, you yes. know, Tick was driven away via that kind of suffocating care. Whereas Geralt was discarded uh, by yeah. a family that should have loved him and used by a family that should have loved him and then and thus you know exiled mm-hmm. because of that uh so they're they have they came to very similar places in their lives uh at this moment but they get, were in very different paths to get there yeah yeah so i want to talk about Tibin vori because like uh, i am her and my she is favorite me. character <laughs> <laughs> i sent you like a text where i was like i am her and she is me <laughs> Yes. When she's um, just like, I am so sick of all of you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I, th- I think you might have like related to her on a more personal level than I did, but I just, I adored her. Like even from the first like time she shows up and it's um, like with Ingray and the golden orchid representative. And she's just like, I don't understand what the problem is. Like, why, <laughs> why did you this. call me? Why did you interrupt my dinner? Like, I'm only here you. for the food. I'm only here because they said I could drink, I could eat something else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is there tea here? <laughs> um, so yeah, so she, she was, a she was another, I, um, character that was, um, kind of suffering this, uh, like outsider status and, um, basically her family was in disgrace and so the greatest shame that her family could be given under the pretense of this is an honor and you know for her personally as well is being the ambassador to the GAC which is it sounds really important but she's like there's what there's nothing to do like the treaties like in effect so, well, so much basically... of the Radchai culture isn't so much stuff as it is behavior. I mean, there's like yes. stuff that goes with it, like the tea drinking and the gloves, right? But even right. if you don't have those things, you're still Radchai. And yeah, and she can't, there's no one to do the behaviors with. So yes. she's just like, she's nothing. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's stuck out there all alone. And um yeah like has no one to to be with in her culture no one to understand and the food's terrible like it and sounds just, pretty awful she just hates it she just hates it uh i think uh, i think it's the kirkus review that describes her as hilariously rude mm-hmm. uh, maybe it was the tour review somebody was like hilariously rude the hilariously rude radchai to ambassador and i was like yes that encaps- <laughs> encapsulates the radchai like in two words because yes <laughs> as a as a you know a relatively mainstream acting person in, in for for earth circa 2012 <laughs> they are hilariously rude not to her but also you're not radchai so she doesn't need to treat you any right. better than she is uh it's just i love yeah, also hilarious it's also a great um example of the kind of humor i really really enjoy which is that 
you don't understand something as funny unless you have a lot of other information behind it mm-hmm. that yes. that that you're kind of nostalgic for in a way. Uh, and so, like, if you read this book first before the other ancillary, you know, the other books, you certainly could. But mm-hmm. I don't think that, say, Ambassador T. Benvori would be funny. Yeah. Um, it might it might be like a little topically like you know amusing like oh you know poor poor ambassador like complaining about the terrible food yeah you know like but it wouldn't it's be topically real like real funny like it is now funny? because you know how dumb and horrible the radchai actually are yes well and and also because of course you can't um, you can't help but like compare the ambassador to like the radchai ambassador to the gek with of course our favorite like presger translators because they they're essentially like ambassadors for the presger mm-hmm. and so they also have that weird like we're trying to understand your culture and failing miserably yeah kind of persp- <laughs> like tim and vori is different because she's basically like i don't understand and i don't give a shit i don't i'm not even trying and that's yeah. so like that's so very like rad chai of her to have that attitude <laughs> mm-hmm um but no you're like you're you're completely right it's a deep context kind of humor um because like i'm, I'm sitting here like that's so rad chai but like if yeah. you don't know what, what that means that mean? like you don't you don't you don't like and it's it's not something that you can really like encapsulate it's like you just you have this emergent context from having read the other books or you don't right and i so that's when i would say like you know you can read provenance on its own it's completely a standalone book you don't Mm -hmm. need to understand anything else it's thrilling when they wreck when they you know uh reference the conclave and how everyone's going including these ships like what ships and you're like Mm -hmm. oh it's it's ancillary justice yes um (laughs) you know it's breck it's breck who's gonna be there talking um but you know, that's fine. You don't need to know that. Uh, you could read them in the other order. But I think that mm-hmm. it, I think that, and I, and I, and I do want to reference, I did uh, watch and you've had the ability, I've seen her speak, but not directly about her books and you, but you mm-hmm. have, and there's a really great uh, video on YouTube uh, of, that she did as part of the Providence tour. She did a reading and some Q and A at Google. So it's pretty easy to find and it's really well shot. And she, she talks about how she doesn't outline her books and how she can't write out of order. And I think that that's evident because Mm -hmm. she's writing in order. She's already written those other books and this is the next story that she's writing in that universe, but that's still, you know, informed by what she's written before. So I think Mm -hmm. she is one of those authors where I would stick to an order of reading, uh, Mm -hmm. which isn't something I always do, but I think with her it's necessary. Yeah, um, I I definitely have the impression that I got more out of this book um, than I would have, like, if I just, if this was my first book that, you know, that I picked up from her. Um, I think I would have enjoyed it uh, regardless, but I really loved it. Like, I had, um, because, because, like, the, gosh, like, she just, she has this richness, um to the worlds that she creates where like there's all these things that like she doesn't really directly explain they're just there and mm-hmm. um you know regardless of whether she even knows like what they mean she you know but like you know to the culture and the people there that they matter they mean something they're you know 
And so and she feels... might know how they work, but she doesn't necessarily tell us. And that's fine. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. And, you know, either way, whether, whether she does or whether she doesn't, you know, she knows like your imagination's going to like fill fill in something, at least fill in like a, a, a meaning there, like a depth of of just um, detail that makes the world's just feel real and like they do have you know this multiplicity well, of i think it's also and... like ingray doesn't know how a space elevator works so she doesn't think about how it works yeah she just knows that she gets on it and it goes to the space station and that is the parts where it feels so much like cj cherry to me mm-hmm. because while she's certainly capable and shows us in the ancillary books that she can write about big ships and and mm-hmm. jumping and like technical stuff although mm-hmm. she glosses over it you know she's not sitting there doing math for us which is fine with me but right. <laughs> you know she it's it's really based on this is my limited character mm-hmm. and my limited character doesn't know what she doesn't know and she doesn't care what she doesn't care about right and if if the hallway's over there or her uncle's office is here or this is how a car works or you know like i guess this is a beautiful rock mm-hmm. that's what you know and yeah. that that kind of treading water is something that you know it's like you trust that the author is going to take you somewhere where you finally get all the vocabulary and reference that you need to understand what the hell is going on but <laughs> right and you i think for us because we've read the other books we had an easier time with with this particular book but mm-hmm. that and i think that's also something that people who read a lot of, fa- of sci-fi that's in this vein are good at doing but mm-hmm. if you're a new reader like if you haven't really read this but and like he is get, making a big splash and she is on a lot of lists and this is the first mm-hmm. time you've picked up this book. I feel like it could be intimidating. I don't know. I, re- I remember reading an article a long time ago about CJ Cherry and about how they, they were reading the first Foreigner book and they were like, you know, this book isn't really a great book for like a first time reader. It's really hard and like it's it kind of inexplicable and confusing and you spend like a lot of the book just like not knowing what the hell is going on and i don't think that's good and i remember being like (laughs) no but that's the point that's life it's supposed Mm -hmm. to make you feel like that it's not a mistake yeah uh and i think that she's doing a lot of the same stuff and i'm sorry i went on a cherry tangent but it's what i love you know it's like yeah weird aliens that you can really relate to who who are just alien enough to feel real to us even though it's probably Mm -hmm. so much it's just it's just human right with funny words and she does it in a way that makes us examine like you know we're sitting here talking about provenance and all these vestiges but all these people like ingray's adopted her brother's adopted Mm -hmm. uh palat i believe was adopted tick wasn't but you know left um t-bon vori had was like tick and garal and slash palad like that she had been exiled like there's all these Mm -hmm. people away from home who Mm -hmm. who where they come from defines who they are but we don't know what that is and how do you deal with that ironically this just occurred to me uh the fact that the society is way and they're on way station i don't Mm -hmm. know like way station is Mm -hmm. like a kind of stop stopping point on you know on a journey it's a like, I don't know. That just um, no, yeah. In in some ways, having all these like kind of dis displaced, uh, dispossessed individuals like together, like that's exactly where they are. They're on a way station while they try and figure out like where's my life going, like what am I doing? Yeah. And that um, we haven't talked about Talcris yet. Talcris is a person in, in on the Hawaii society. You know, they get to choose their their gender and their identity and their kind of real name at some point mm-hmm. themselves when they reach adolescence or you know like mid teens or whatever. 
But mm-hmm. Talkers hadn't. Talkers was sort of considered a deviant because they had they'd been like in child state status for a very long time, and then suddenly decided, "Well, I'm Talkers. Please refer to me as a she, and this is my job, and this is my name now." Mm-hmm. And she makes a really pointed um, point in the book that Ingray calls her friend by her new name and her new gender, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that makes Talkers like her. It's mm-hmm. important to her. And yeah. I, you know, and, and you know, she's not doing something quite as over, as as overpowering, I would say, as the she pronouns in the other books. Like she's using, um, oh, I wrote down what it's called. Hold on. It's men, women, Neiman, Neiman. Men, women, Neiman. Uh, it's called the Spivak pronouns. So it's uh, he, she, M, uh, you know, they is becomes ear. Uh, it's when you read it, it almost, it's almost like you're reading like some kind of like very Southern or like maybe like a Cockney, something where they keep, they don't mm-hmm. make all their H noises. Uh, yeah. so it becomes, it's really easy to read and you pick it up really fast because it's all the same last three letters that we use in English for yeah, bear it's, and, it's, and possessive it's stuff. air. Like it, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. It completely makes sense. Uh, but it's called the Spivak pronouns. That's a thing. Those are real. There are people who, you know, that those are their their preferred pronouns. So it's a lot easier to deal with, I think, than calling everyone she in the in the Radshai books. The way books. the Ratch do, yeah. Yes. Like it, it's a it's a different way of framing the um the questioning our binary gender society. Yeah. Like the yeah. the Ratch doesn't recognize gender. This definitely recognizes gender, but it's a more complex and or nuanced um recognition than what art like our modern american culture has yeah and i think that self-identity is is kind of important in the society mm-hmm. like are there fourth and fifth and sixth genders in way society that's possible we're not seeing mm-hmm. that but at right. least there's room for three in their yeah. in their grammar system yeah yeah well i mean go, going back to um to the title of the book i mean in a lot of ways this is a very traditional coming-of-age novel. So, like, the title of the book could, in fact, refer to Ingray's, like, origin story as how she comes to be, like, her full adult self. Mm-hmm. Like, even though she chose a long time ago, like, that she was a she and that her name was Ingray, um, I mean, she has this talk with Ta- with Talcris that she, you know... Um, like Stalkers was saying, like, how did you know? And Inger was like, I just chose. Like, I just did it. And like, because we're seeing like the her point of view so strongly and so deeply, like we see all the ways that she feels almost like an imposter. You know, like she's doing doing these actions, and she doesn't necessarily know her own convictions, and she doesn't necessarily know like why she like what what she even wants. And it's, um, I mean, it can be like a a subtle process or it can be like a really obvious and painful process that's sort of like coming into like your own identity and your own self. And that's what this process, that's what the story does for Ingrays. It does finally like bring her into like that full knowledge of this is who I am and this is what I want and this is what I don't want. Um, And I don't know. I just, um, I like that, the, especially in contrast to Talcris, who seems yeah. to have agonized over her choices and maybe, you know, not because she didn't know, but because mm-hmm. she didn't want to limit herself by making right. a choice. Yeah. And, but then by the time yeah. she did, she actually like had that sort of sense of 
no, this is what I want. And this, this is, is who what I, I am. She was really so she, sure. Yeah. So she was very like, once she like had her naming and like became herself, like she was very like comfortable in that. Whereas right. Ingrid and, did and she was a little bit pushed to do it because she need, she she had to have that status to get the job she had. And right. her job was kind of like going away if she didn't take it at that point. She knew she wanted that job. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's always a catalyst for something. And some people make their decisions a lot or 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 mm-hmm. seemingly don't make decisions easier than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I like that. I like that every single person was a facet. And that goes back to like the colored stones in Mm -hmm. in esway park you know it's like they're all that uh they're all the you know they come together and they make this great story but they all have those different point of views and they all come from different places but they all kind of help each other out Mm -hmm. uh i i always i just thought it was really funny at the end could we talk about this because i don't i'm confused okay did captain lucene steal the vestiges and put them in the in the mech. Who did that? Um, I assumed it was Tick because the lights I, were off. But it was really because mm-hmm. it, it happened really fast. I think. Um, I I think it was actually at that point the mechs were being controlled by um, the wait like the the station security but they hadn't figured out how to not tip their hands so i think that was the the people controlling the mechs um that were pretending to be uh uh so i mean let's just assume that like anybody listening to this has read the fucking book um (laughs) like (laughs) they were pretending to be the the omchem um people that had been controlling the mechs on behalf right, of but, Captain. Right, but Tick was helping them, right? Because they were like, oh, we never would have been able to do this as fast if we didn't have Tick helping us, which to me means there had to have been one of the spider mechs um, somewhere. Around. Maybe. Um, so, you, you know, maybe. I don't, I, but I don't know whether he was... It, you know what? It was a little bit ambiguous, and I was it reading was the weird. end it was very weird. quickly because I was, I was just so focused on, like, what happened, and I didn't... I was like, oh, okay, it was somebody on, like, the security team and or Tick, like, doing it. Like, I don't care, mm-hmm. like, you know, what's going on here. Um, so I'm, well, I'm, I'm actually Because sure. I was, like, obsessed with those objects, right? Like I said, I felt like... I felt like, oh, this is going to be... They're going to learn that the objects don't mean anything or, yeah. or, that they, or that they actually did or that it, it, they can be replaced with other objects and still given that permanence, you know, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. And in the end, it was like, no, we actually saved the objects. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, that's the one thing I didn't think was going to happen, that these objects that we've spent, you know, 300 pages talking about how they were fake, but isn't right? it nice that they still have meaning, even that they're fake, were actually going to make it. They were gonna yeah. be okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was kind of unexpected. <laughs> it was for me. It was very unexpected. I was like, "Oh, yep, they're gone. The the Omchem took them. They're fucked up now. Who cares? They're mm-hmm. gonna find other objects of you know that were there now for for significance." And even Ingre like has that discussion with herself. She's like, "It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's okay that they took that because it's just an object and it wasn't real anyway." And mm-hmm. In the end, it's like, well, actually, no, we've got them right here. And she's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly, like, <laughs> saved her, you know, some trouble from, like, having to explain what happened or, you know, also, like, um, 
having to worry about what the new things were going to be until that got settled. You know, I'm sure it was a relief. And even if like rationally, you know, like that they, they, they were fake and didn't matter. Like she also has the discussion with herself like, well, but they've been on display for the last 300 years. So yeah, even so they're if they fake, were but they're real. fake, they still have like now become like weighted with significance and history of their own. Um, you know, aside from their like the Velveteen um, origin. <laughs> yeah, they've become. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the Velveteen Rabbit. Uh, that's another great book about vestiges. Uh, <laughs> uh, so and, other and becoming that I really want to make sure that we talk about that I loved. Um, the two Omchem uh, invaders and their stupid translator mm-hmm. microbes that don't work. Uh, those oh, my God. Those were <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah. So like my um, the comment I made in the notes was that this is a perfect example of like of a meme. And this this is mm. something that like the older I get and the more I guess I know about different time periods and different cultures, the more I see like the threads of this in literature and across like time and space is basically like all all human culture is a meme. Like we we translate different or transmit different ideas and people like pick up on them and run with them and like you get you get something like 30 years out of context and nobody like gets what what the context was you know and so i'm like my comment was this is like the the fucked up translations that ingray's like bad like limited little uh, auto translator is offering for the OMCAM language like are almost like you can't really like every now and then you can kind of understand what it means but they're gibberish and I was like this is Google Translate like it's this Google is Translate it's Babblefish yeah like this is this is a joke that like everybody in our generation completely like understands mm-hmm. but like take this book 30 years ago like that's meaningless I mean you, like, I think it's you also understand... funny for people who study languages because it's like I guess when you when if you try to literally translate yeah. anything It'll always yes. come out like that. Yeah. You know, so like it, it it's not that it would it would be an incomprehensible joke, but it wouldn't have like doesn't have the, the, the yeah the layer the of cultural reference yeah. that it has to someone reading it right now in twenty seventeen who has ever tried idiom. to translate anything with Yeah, people. it's like idiom <laughs> is always idiom is always that thing that you get when you attain fluency. You understand mm-hmm you know f- turns a phrase and why why a, why that rhymes or why a word that sounds like another word is even funny and and right and that's the thing so all she's getting is like literal like word for word without any changes in the grammar so everything's backwards just like if you if you were in like you know french 101 and you went and you literally translated every word it'd be like sky cloud pink dog truck and you're like what the fuck does that mean but it's actually turn a phrase that means something else uh so she's trying to figure out what the hell this, they're saying and it's yes. being translated half the time by that that guy but mm-hmm. it's just like she it's just funny it's just funny as she's <laughs> yeah well like i think i think the first the first moment where it um it comes up where you know that like the translation device is lying fiddlesticks swore captain mm-hmm. commander hat like you know that when they just blew up uh 
a spider mech that might or might not have been the Gek ambassador. She didn't fucking say fiddlesticks. Okay, <laughs> like that's obvious from the get go. Yes, and that's probably and that's true. It is. It was programmed by someone else to maintain the dignity of the people who are using the language. So there's there's also that filter of how it is lying to her. Right. It's um, really masterfully done too, because again there's more of the provenance right like there's more of how she's trying to communicate across mm-hmm. these barriers of understanding uh and culture and significance it's just such a great it's a great book and i, I there are some like legitimate criticisms of it i think that the relationship with her brother janak is a little underdeveloped uh mm-hmm. and then like you know her mom because her brother's like he's there like he's your favorite and there's like no evidence that like, he doesn't do anything that would make him anyone's favorite he just comes off as like a petulant like edwardian like baby yeah uh, but you know there's probably evidence that he's doing that but again from in grace point of view he sucks so he sucks uh and the same thing goes for her mother who she finds to be cold and aloof it's probably not very true uh but yeah yeah well i mean i think um we haven't really like directly touched on this but you you have to consider anytime you've got like a seriously deep like third person limited point of view that you might be dealing with an unreliable narrator and like you know ingray sees herself as almost like broken certainly she sees herself as like marginally incompetent and like not anything special and she basically she spends her entire life comparing herself to her brother and her and you know perhaps the natano as well and seeing only the ways that she isn't like them and that she fails to be like that and so she has like no real sense of her own strengths or um value and you know you have various other characters who will say things to her that like are completely divergent from that perspective it's like you always have a plan i knew you would mm-hmm. do i knew you would make a bold move you know like it, it, but she sees herself as like oh yeah this... the the things that the mech pilots at the end are told they're like careful of her she's gonna do something crazy <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly you know but she sees herself <laughs> she almost like shoes this... that aren't hers <laughs> yeah like this victim that things happen to you know um and um oh man i'm still yeah, like I flipping think there, pages I, I texted you something we i texted you something when we were reading this because uh, we you know we were inevitably comparing contrasting with what had gone on in the ancillary books and mm-hmm. you know we were talking about how like those are action books right and right there's a lot going on and there's a lot of layers and there's multiple time uh time frames that come together to a point and it's explosive and and um, I liken Breck to like the Terminator, right? And like how it was like a, a almost pornography of competency. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you get to Ingray, who you know it's not like that. And I and I um, I said, and I think this is what I said that the structure of it and the way that it was presented reminded me of like a traditional romance novel. In mm-hmm. that the main character is often kind of bumbling and a lot of things just happen to them. Yes. Uh, and like they kind of just survive them and like shake it off and like, oh, okay. And then like because of all those experiences, they're able to put two and two together and get to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because yet, there was actually, a murder mystery. Yeah. But yet if you actually like look at the book, so much of what happens is in fact directed by Ingray and the choices that she makes to to counter like what she sees happening to her but she like because she's not viewing it that way like it takes you most of the way through the book as the reader for you to realize right but i'm thinking like you know if you read like a robin mckinley book or even uh, Mm -hmm. a book that we've read on the on the podcast um 
uprooted where it's like mm-hmm. the the main character is somebody who sees herself as things that bad things happen to yes. and not yeah. as an agent of change uh whereas right. breck saw herself as a fulcrum right like she oh. was gonna go in there and fuck you up and it was her that was gonna do it yeah uh, like well but breck wasn't trying to like change society she just no but she was <laughs> she, she was gonna fuck somebody up like that yeah. that was her like entire goal like i'm a fuck a bitch up <laughs> I'm gonna put my hands around their neck and I'm gonna squeeze <laughs> you and me and oh! my and I <laughs> this one's for lieutenant on <laughs> like oh but yeah, Ingrid, but you know, at the, you know, we're seeing it because we can observe her. It's like, no, no, yes. you picked up the random shoes. You hit the guy. <laughs> you decided that you were going to spend all your money and get this person out of out of compassionate removal. Like, you know, yes. it's like you negotiated with the captain. You mm-hmm. walked into that room with the terrorists and got your mom out. Like you did all these yeah. things, but for her it's just like this I just keep having a bad day. Right. <laughs> and, that's what it reminded me of those kind of traditional stories mm-hmm. in which the hero kind of is an unwitting hero I, I guess I would say yeah no I mean that's certainly very true and I mean I think the way I think the choice that Ingray makes at the end sort of bears that out where she's like no I kind of just want to go home and like get back I to living right which that was hard for me because I was like no girl man you go with your new friends go on the adventure go to the conclave be part of history like how do you not like how do you pass up the chance to like roll around with a geck to the fucking conclave oh my god she's gotta drink that weird salt water for who knows how oh fuck that she could make Tib and Vori like her best friend for life by taking on like sufficient supplies on way station of like human goods to get them through the next like six years I got some tea And then suddenly, suddenly the uh, the ambassador is very nice to her. Uh... <laughs> but um, I, I, f- I found a, I, f- I finally found one of the translations. It took me a lot of flipping. Oh, okay. Finally, it said Com- Commander Hatkaban as another Federacy mech trundled into the room. Good quick work. Specified several captive offer a turnip ship. Time is finite. <laughs> Additional only these to exit. Search attribute exhaustive. <laughs> And like, it's okay. just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, it almost makes sense, but it doesn't. <laughs> but it's important that she can kind of understand what's going on, right? And that she yeah. assume what she's understanding is correct because there's so much shit going on and it's like her life. Like people get shot. Yeah. Uh, and like you could feel her adrenaline running and her fear and and the and how desperate the, the OMCAM are starting to get. Mm-hmm. And how brave it is for her to start kind of yelling at them and snarking at them and, and telling them, look, I know you don't have any time left. And I know this is all bullshit. And I know you started doing this before even then. And like the murder mm-hmm. doesn't matter. And leave Pilat alone. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just like, God, she's such a badass. I don't know. I, li- I really no like Ingray. Yeah. And she has yeah. no clue. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like um, she's meant to be a character that has to grow on you, you know, like that you I mean, like, I I guess I found her kind of, like, hapless and endearing at first. I was like, oh, girl. I mean, she's fairly on. I feel like the the moment when Pallad's like, I'm not Pallad Boudreaux, and she believes him. Like, that was the moment that, like, I was like, oh, girl, (laughs) you're touching my heart here. Because I'm fucking gullible. I can be gullible (laughs) like that, too. Like, as smart as I think I am, as, like, well as I think I read people, I can be fucking gullible. And if somebody's, like, looking me in the eye and, like, giving me absolute conviction i'm not palad budricum i'm gonna be like 
fuck. You're not Palazzo Dracone. <laughs> <laughs> but what do I do now? Do I do but now? I love that her plan appeared to be wake up Palazzo Dracom, ask him where the vestiges were. That well, was, was her based- plan. Yeah, she was like going to tempt him with revenge and like any money that they got out of it. <laughs> she didn't and have any that- more money. So it's like, but- what was she going to do if he said no? I'm not telling you. Yeah, she, she had, had no, no backup plan. plan. She had no plan. But she was like just going to hope that like he felt enough, um, you know, obligation or gratitude to her for, you know, getting him out that he would help and like let her like in on anything he Or did. also that like <laughs> if she just asked nicely enough, he would be obligated to respond in a polite manner <laughs> with the answer to her question. I there I, I sent you another text uh, about how like and this also is a CJ Terry move where it's just like you have a lot of chaos and then like mm-hmm. there's this inexplicable person who just won't stop being polite. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> they just keep politely asking questions or like, like, you know, like, oh, like here's a bunch of terrorists and they just threatened to kill a bunch of kids. But can you get this old man a chair? I mean, what's wrong with you? You're making him <laughs> sit on the floor. Can we get him a chair? Let's get him a chair. And it's and then they comply. Why? Mm-hmm. Why are they complying? <laughs> like, I just love it. I love people who are just like, I'm just going to, I am adhering to my morals right now. And that is what is right. Mm-hmm. Well, drag so. Drag along with you. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like I've covered about everything that I wanted to talk about. I know that you had um, some things to say about cherry simply because um you've now seen enough uh interviews uh with lecky for her to have confirmed that as an influence so i don't know if there's anything that you needed or wanted to say about that but here's well, your I here's your moment <laughs> i here's my moment to uh recommend a book to you elena <laughs> oh okay <laughs> uh so is it it is my turn or am i taking my turn am i taking um, my turn uh, it is definitely your turn to recommend because awesome. I, I demanded that we read this book because I knew I wasn't going to fucking read two books in the same month and I was already reading this one. So, all right. So, yeah, it's your turn to recommend. <laughs> so, uh, as part uh, and and this is something that if you are a Cherry fan and I know that I've yelled this at you in, in all in all caps IRL and also in texts and on emails and anyone in the Internet who follows me, I've yelled this in, just into space. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are very deliberate uh, references to C.J. Cherry, specifically to C.J. Cherry's foreigner novels in her in these books. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in in Providence, there are uh, there are references. So, uh, as as a result of the of these books, uh, and uh, as a way to acknowledge the provenance of Anne Leckie's books, I am assigning uh, C.J. Cherry's foreigner. There are right. 19 of these books, so we will not be reading all of them unless you really want to. Uh, but uh, I, you know, she confirmed it in several interviews, including that Google interview that I, I, re- I referenced earlier in this discussion. She very explicitly states that C.J. Cherry is one of her influences and that she definitely has made references to them. And the, the references that I'm talking about, uh, besides the T, uh, and the very proper behavior uh, is the the translators themselves, especially mm-hmm. the the way that she makes the translators dress. Not maybe how they act, uh, although maybe uh, depends on whose viewpoint you have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we're gonna read uh, the story of a uh, one Bren Cameron 
uh, and his adventures as the only uh, allowable by treaty uh, uh, human allowed uh, amongst the alien Atevi. Okay, so, well, I mean, I know three uh, favorite books, so you better not like tell me anything bad about them. <laughs> well, I know I, I know this much. Uh, Foreigner is uh, it's at this point a classic, and it's sort of you know it's one of those books that I've seen on the bookstore shelf for you know probably as long as I've been perusing the science fiction section. So, mm-hmm. which at this point is like twenty years. <laughs> Something like I, I think it's going to be really exciting for me to have you read Cherry for the first time with Anne Leckie as a mm-hmm. starting point. Uh, I've never, for me, she's always been there. She was mm-hmm. recommended to me when I was probably 12 years old. Uh, although the Foreigner books were not the first books that I read by her. But she has a very um, distinctive st- prose style. Uh, mm-hmm. She does very limited third person uh and i just don't i don't know she also likes to clobber you with very deep context jokes and uh competency porn and <laughs> tea and uh just you oh, know you're it's just you're great. saying all of these things with like with hesitance in your voice and i'm like yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I really hope you enjoy them. Uh, it's gonna be really <laughs> exciting for me, just for you to. I've, I just, I haven't actually read any cherries since reading Anne Lackey, so it's gonna be mm-hmm. really fun for me too. Ah, oh, yeah, that's a little, I think it'll, uh, I think it'll be fun for both of us. So I look forward to it. Cool. Fingers crossed that I love it. Drink <laughs> some tea for the next one. <laughs> and you know, we'll have to uh, work out a numbering scheme if we do end up reading all nineteen, episode seventeen point. Two. Seventeen point three. You're gonna get addicted, don't worry. You're gonna get addicted. The next one comes out in January. Uh I do not have time to read nineteen books between now and She's, January. It's just exciting. It's exciting to read a book series that is uh very that has existed for a very long time, that has been formative, uh obviously for a, an author that we both really admire. Uh, yeah. But also, like, CJ Cherry just won the Grandmaster Fantasy Award last year. That's when I met her. She's still writing. She is a badass. I really hope you enjoy it. Me too. All right. Cool. Well, excellent, uh, excellent talk and deconstruction. And uh, we'll holler at you soon. Bye. Don't let the spider mechs bite. <laughs>